think if you look at a human being and you limit their options to load share, you're going to end up with issues. These things can be potentially, anyway, continuing the pain cycles, maybe setting the scene for flare-ups and they don't know that a flare-up doesn't mean they're injured and they're back to square one. That, I think, is powerful for people. Pain is something that we all feel. I'm sure it's the reason for many of us why we got into training in the first place, stretching, strength training, to feel healthier, feel more robust, and that we can tackle life's challenges. Today's guest, David McGettigan, is a pain and a movement specialist. We're gonna talk about our perception of pain, how we can move away and change our relationship to it, and how we can become more robust human beings with lifestyle habits. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. What are you working? Is it mostly clinical stuff are you seeing? Yeah. So patients? at the minute, it's it's very much clinical stuff and the kind of common presentation for me are the people that are struggling, that have been a lot of places, that have had maybe uh, consultations with surgeons, with orthopedics, with you know specialists and are still maybe not getting to where they think they should be. Mm -hmm. That's kind of my bread and butter. To put it yes. that way. I've fallen into that over time. <laughs> it's it was definitely not where I started, not where I ever anticipated going. Um I was definitely when I came out of university, I was taught to massage, manipulate, stretch and strengthen. And that was and there was a bit of reasoning as to, about injuries and red flags and stuff behind that. And after yeah. that it was like don't really know why stuff stuff is happening, don't really know what I'm doing hundred percent of the time. Obviously you're only coming out of college, you've the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was an interesting one. I actually got really disillusioned with it at the start and attempted to quit <laughs> from being a physio. Yep. But so was that just because you... so technically I didn't actually study physiotherapy. I studied sports rehabilitation, which okay. is like physiotherapy minus the uh, the the respiratory stuff, like the the kind of CF physiotherapy, the chronic cystic fibrosis, all that side of things, and minus the neuro. So I was kind of more geared to sports teams and athletic populations and that type of thing when i was studying i did a, i did a bridging course here in ireland before i went and studied that and i kind of did shadowing of different uh, therapists and stuff and didn't really enjoy the shadowing for the physio side of it because it was kind of at the time and it could have just been the days i was in i was kind of seeing people get a little bit of assessment and handed sheets of exercises and then yeah. i was like not really sure what i was doing was it that the things that you were taught at university when you were then applying them to patients was the the results maybe more inconsistent. Yeah, oh, totally. That was that was the thing. I mean, I I kind of felt like I didn't have confidence as a therapist, which I mean, you're probably not expected to have that. I was expecting myself to have it, but you're not really supposed to have it when you leave uh, university. You probably need experience, and the confidence comes after all of that. Um, and then i was let's say i get someone with knee pain i was treating them with the stuff i was taught the kind of processes the kind of uh, cookie cutter kind of template stuff and some people would get better some people would not really change some people would get better for an hour two days a yeah. week ring you back up and say david that's all kind of back I, I i don't feel any different and i'm kind of scratching my head going what the hell is it me is it my treatment? Was it the pressure I use at my hands? Have they done their homework? Is it is it something to do with any of those, uh, any and all of those factors? And I really didn't have a clear indicator as to what was happening. So I remember going through a spell where a lot of people didn't really get better. And I was like, oh, this is not for me. 
and I actually told my parents I'm 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 thinking of going back to study music because I don't like this. <laughs> I'm a keen musician as well. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> they sat me down and said, uh, "Absolutely not. Get your head out of your you know where and <laughs> and actually try to do something different and 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 uh, stick with it." Do you know? Is it an interesting point? Because I guess being a physio should be relatively standardized, right? Like most people mm -hmm. receive similar education. Yep. And the advice that like, if, if anyone says to me like on injury, I don't tend to give advice on injury because I'm not qualified in that mm -hmm. way. I've dealt with plenty of my own, Yep. but I understand that there's much more to it. And you always say like, I'll go see a good physio, mm -hmm. um, but it can be so hit and miss. What, what do you think the reason, like what, what, what makes a, a good physiotherapist practice yeah that's a good question what, what are the things to like look out for if you'd asked me that years ago i probably would give you a different answer sure so years ago i would have been very much about the biomedical hands-on you have to get someone who's skilled that way now i think that's an important facet of it you want to have the therapist wants to have confidence in that and obviously you can't know that going in but the other thing that's important i think is that they look at you as a whole person uh that that is not as just the injury. That Not just the injury, because I mean, what I would see in clinic as an example would be people who like my, my, the population I tend to work with is quite different from an acute ankle sprain, an acute hamstring pull. Yeah. These are people that have been struggling for maybe six months, six years, 10 years, 15 years on and off intermittently, or maybe constantly. So there's a very different set of needs. So it depends on what you're presenting to the clinic with. So maybe if you were going to get assessed, like you, you would hope that the physio would ask about different lifestyle factors Absolutely. other than just like, where does it hurt? Absolutely. And, and that, that the assessment process, personally for me, the assessment process doesn't just focus on the site of pain and maybe the joint above and below. It looks at the whole picture. Because I, like, as a, a, a simple example, a person with back pain comes into the clinic and if you only look at their back or maybe their hip, you might get limited information, whereas they might have... Uh, a neck that is really restricted and that in a, from a movement sense if you have a, a system of movement that you understand and you can work with and it kind of helps you understand the interconnectedness of the body then you might see that that neck that can't move chronically that might not be that painful but is restricted is feeding down into a lack of movement around their hips and pelvis and, and that could be missed completely do you know it's that side of it's that whole person view from a movement perspective from a health perspective from uh, a psychological perspective trying to understand help them to piece the pieces together do you know like i i I, I kind of see a lot of people that they they struggle along they have a lot of differing opinions i think that's a big problem for people with, with pain they have a lot of different opinions and a lot of people are confused they have no understanding as to what is actually happening for them um, so I think someone to come back to the question, someone who can help you understand what is happening for you can help you make sense of your own journey, your own history and your own circumstances, your own influences on what might be, be, be kind of increasing or decreasing symptoms at times. That's really, really important. If people aren't maybe looking at that side of things, there's possibly, especially for a chronic um, symptom, there's a lot left on the table. There's so many questions I want to yep. ask, but uh, maybe it's worth covering the difference between acute and chronic because yep. i think that's probably a, a, a big deal a lot of people will yeah. like it's I, I feel like it's somewhat inevitable that if you do something that you're going to push yourself sometimes you're going to hurt yourself in yep. an acute way yep you know you might have a tweak here and a strain there certainly yep. if you're playing a sport a sport yep. where it's impact based you know rugby mm -hmm. uh, martial yep. arts 
there's stuff that's out of your control that's gonna yep absolutely so those external factors yeah yeah um so maybe it's just worth like understanding the difference between the two um acute obviously there's there's often a mechanism of injury for an acute issue for chronic issues there there can be flare-ups more 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 likely than an acute or than a, than a mechanism of injury a, a chronic for me tends to be anything over about three four months that's kind of constant or or intermittent or persistent that sort of thing whereas acute stuff we know it's kind of done in the scientific literature you know there's a healing process that takes place and unless you have some sort of uh immune system health issue that compromises that maybe connective tissue disorder that makes it different for you there's a fairly standard healing process that happens for most people excuse me most tissues take different times to heal so muscles can take weeks to months ligaments maybe a little longer depending on the grade of injury tendons can be longer cartilage can be longer so if you know that side of things you can kind of set a, a semi-realistic expectation as to what the time frame should be yes when that is surpassed so like a classic example would be someone comes in 18 months after a, a twist of a knee yeah and they're still struggling with a knee sore knee sore foot hip issue etc etc that's a chronic issue for me mm-hmm. and then there are factors that go into that, that that we need to explore with them to to help them understand why they've been struggling um, and to create, you know, to understand the context properly to create a plan to move them past that, do you know? So how important do you think, like, understanding what the origin of the injury is, like, and, and understanding that? Um, I think a lot of people sometimes, um, maybe this is my own sort of personal mm-hmm. opinion, but they're very, they want to know, like, what exactly is wrong yeah, with yeah. it? It hurts here. Yep. What here is wrong? Yep. What's been damaged? Yeah. So I think it comes up on a few points. Number one, central to almost all of the cases that I see on some level, I'd say 80% of the time, maybe more, is that implicit understanding that people have that pain equals damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you probably have, have encountered that and maybe come past that a little bit, but a lot of people maybe listen mightn't have mightn't have thought of this even. If you have pain in your elbow, as you mentioned, it's Im- implied that you have tissue injury there. Yeah. And you know, the way I kind of see it, there's four scenarios. You can have pain with a tissue injury. You can have pain without a tissue injury. You can have no pain and have a tissue injury. And you can have <laughs> no pain and have no tissue injury. Ideally, we obviously want to be in the last category. There. Yes, yeah, yeah. The pre- dominant thing i seem to see in clinic and again i i have a quite a a, a, the population i see it's probably more likely for me to see what i see um i would see people that have a lot of pain that don't seem to have tissue damage yes so when you you encounter that sort of scenario you might find a, a very clear link to a previous issue and you might find a whole mishmash of stuff that's coming together and creating this pain experience. So I think the second piece I would say there is, apart from pain equals damage or not equaling damage, is that if you are looking for an isolated source of issue, sometimes that happens. Sometimes it's never, you could be kind of shining the torch or directing your search in the wrong direction. Yes. And, and it's to, to recognize that a lot of things can influence pain. And it's 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 uh, it's quite a grey area answer, but it's quite a, quite a grey area of influences sometimes too. I like to be able to give actionable actionable advice, yep. and so I think it's a very very hard one because, as you said, yep. it comes so much down to the individual. Um, I guess as a to give you an example or a couple of examples that kind of support what you're saying yep. is uh, my girlfriend. 
she has problems of her or pain in her ankles uh-huh. and she's just recently been to like two physios both of them are like uh, i guess i can't really see anything that's wrong like mm-hmm. we don't understand and then she got an mri and they were like no no the ankle's fine everything's yep. fine but she's still experiencing pain mm-hmm. um so i guess when you have that acute injury you're expecting there's to be some sort of damage that's associated with the pain mm-hmm. and then with the chronic injury it's when that pain persists yeah and it shouldn't necessarily be because there is some sort of physical damage mm-hmm. so what could be the reasons that somebody might be experiencing yep. pain um again plenty of these it could potentially be a loading issue movement issue it could be that the level of uh activity that they're trying to return to as an example is beyond what their system is currently capable of handling which may be irritating without injuring overloading without injuring if that makes sense okay it's one option so um, so somebody who is used to being able to do loads of pull-ups then maybe they get an elbow issue and a shoulder issue they stop doing it they come back to training and try to do loads of pull-ups again. yeah and it, that's a pacing issue that's a return to activity issue so that can be managed um progressive overload is a really i'm sure in your own training you've yeah. obviously done loads of that that's a way to, to to overcome that um i would see a lot of clients who get that exact feedback they've been assessed they can't really find anything that's wrong um they also have maybe have had x-rays mris scans and they don't find anything so they're kind of left in this no man's land yeah and they bounce around people that's kind of who i see so most often you will find with those people well maybe not say all the time you would often see how would i say this like a learning effect i think happening potentially within that person's body where they may have had pain appear for no reason, adapted movement. Maybe they've had an injury in the past and adapted their movement around that, mm-hmm. um, which obviously makes sense. And those behavior changes, those movement adaptations, if that's repeated enough, I think there's possibility there that that can become like a pattern of protection, a learned pattern of protection or a prediction from their central nervous system that they are going to experience a problem when they load in such a way or they do certain tasks or certain activities. And they sort of they've learned to expect it's, pain. it's kind of, yeah, their system is kind of, ha, has had that experience repeatedly enough that maybe they, un, it maybe consciously or initially were, were expecting pain. So they've adapted things already. And maybe over time, as that has become a way of life for them, they've yep. always braced their back or they've always protected their knee or whatever it's going to be, that they end up learning and it, it becomes an unconscious kind of pattern of protection so that is an option i think like I, i'll often ask people what what would you have done before pain that you wouldn't do now yeah that's an interesting and question like they'll often if they sit and think about it sometimes they'll, it'll take them a couple of weeks to actually come up with all the answers they'll, they'll go away and think about it and they'll come back and say david i i don't put my coat on the same way i i, I get into the car with my hands instead of just jumping in or or i i i up the steps sideways or you know stuff they're doing things that is now their normal that they don't really recognize or still adapted tack on to that all of the psychological side um where there's fear where they might be trying to google and look at what they can find yeah, to yeah. relate to their back issue i i have this idea with people a lot of times when they're in that kind of space where there's no real apparent structural issue that there is for those people a lot of times there's an unconscious storm happening that's what i call it so it's the fears the worries the beliefs the opinions the labels diagnosis all that stuff that gets that that implies potential for threat potential for harm 
maybe implies fragility for them and they don't really recognize its influence. And that can be sitting behind the surface, unconscious to them, influencing their perception, I would say, of what's happening in their body and therefore driving or at least influencing a lot of responses that they feel as pain, restriction, yep. tightness, all that sort of thing. So if that's happening and no one has ever shone the torch in that direction for you, there's possibly, again, a lot of stuff that you might not appreciate that is influencing your system. I guess that it's the sort of thing that happens gradually over time yep. as well. Because naturally, we we don't want to be in pain. Of course. If something painful happens, it's like, oh, I'll stop doing that for a yep. bit. Um, I guess you probably either end up on two ends of the spectrum. You're either the sort of person who that you just sort of brush that off, it doesn't affect you. Yep. You go back to doing mm -hmm. training and don't mm -hmm. think about it too much. Mm -hmm. Or you are like, I'm the person, I've got an issue with my elbow. Yep. And then you begin to identify with that issue. And it sort of, I guess, as to use your words, it builds up like a story around, it becomes yeah. part of your yeah, story. Narrative. Yeah, narrative. I can't do that exercise that. because I've got problems with my elbows. I can't do this. Um, how would you, I guess, help people build the confidence to be like, I can actually go and do these things? Yeah, that's one that probably needs to be unpacked and explored over time sure. with the person. And I think central to that, if you're going to introduce that to someone, I think they have to trust you, first of all. So a lot of times when I'm in clinic with someone, I'm looking to build some trust with them first. I think when it comes to it, what you're looking to help them with is to build awareness around influences and then to build awareness around what those influences mean for that person. Because there's a whole meaning piece that sits behind all of that. So if you, you could have a belief that you have a back of a 70-year-old, that in and of itself might not be a problem. But when that means that you can't lift your children or you can't exercise or you can't lie in the bed the way that you feel you should be able to, that's the thing that drives a lot of problems, in my opinion. Sure, and, and limits you from... Massively. Changes behavior, completely. Changes behavior, changes changes life, Yeah, to put it that way. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think if you can help them to see that part of it, then there's an opportunity then to say, well, hold on a minute, is that meaning actually the absolute truth or is that based again upon those beliefs upon all of that stuff is that a meaning you made at a time when you were quite vulnerable when you had no other countering opinion as an example or countering pieces of information and might that still be influencing you to a significant degree so say for example like a lot of people obviously who um i share information with they're they're interested in training and yep. as i said injury, injuries kind of happen um and you and you end up training around it, which I don't think is necessarily the the worst thing in the world because nope. you want to keep doing something. Yep. But when it comes to like, at what point? Not maybe at what point, but like, how do you go about not no longer training around it and beginning to approach it, approach and and bring that injury into your training? Um. Yeah. So for me, what I I think that is where a therapist is really useful. Doing that yeah. on your own can be quite difficult. Oh yeah. You need a little bit of guidance with that. I think the I, I kind of have this idea of contrast experiences being important here. So if you have a knee that's chronically sore, you've moved around, adapted around, etc. How can we give your central nervous system a movement experience, a loading experience, ideally, that does not provoke the same type of response? Is there a way we can do that? Like a contrast experience to demonstrate for your body that this knee actually might be safe to take some load. So perhaps maybe like the common attitude is like oh we want to load it in some way mm -hmm. which i think is good but maybe if there's still that presence of pain there's still a little bit of doubt in the back of your head that yep. maybe this is still doing something bad yep. maybe i'm still not strong enough so you're trying to look for something that like feels really really good 
Yeah, that's that that's one load. approach. And also, like, it's not to avoid the presence of pain. Yeah, I mean, I think a loose guidance I give people if that is that if it's below like a four or five in terms of discomfort or pain, if you are comfortable to just expose yourself gradually to that you may start to see that that's that your system will start to recognize some safety or a lack of not as much threat as it is perceiving maybe around that and and start to gradually allow a little bit more aka that prediction of needing protection is, is updating a little bit yeah to use that maybe terminology on it i think that's a useful approach yeah um reassurance i mean louis gifford who i don't know if you've ever heard of him he's one of the best physiotherapy writers i think he's passed away now he's a brilliant physiotherapist um wrote an amazing book which for me is like the bible of physiotherapy in terms of a biopsychosocial approach aches and pains he he wrote that reassurance is a really powerful painkiller and i i really really agree with that reassurance from the perspective like it's gonna be okay it's gonna be okay you or, or as an example if you go and you start bending that knee that's sore and it maybe irritates you right now or it's a little sore reassuring them that knowing maybe from my perspective that human bodies are incredibly robust that maybe yeah. they've had a scan that doesn't show anything on their knee knowing that even though it hurts right now the level of loading you're encountering right now doing this knee bending or quad extension x whatever it might be you are not anywhere near the physiological limits that will create tissue damage sure that's a big piece so if they know that well i'm not anywhere near that level of creating injury then I have, and if I, I usually would say to people that more than likely is some sort of protective response. Um, if we can demonstrate willingness to go towards that a little bit, we give you set yourself a chance. You give your system a, an opportunity to recognize, well, hold on a minute, nothing bad has happened there. Yeah. And that I think is powerful. That can be the thing that starts the, 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 the cycle turning in the opposite direction. And we can progressively build on that over time. I think I can definitely I can definitely contest that because I've had I've had my fair share of injuries yep. over the years, most of them just being stupid. Um, <laughs> but the one thing that has actually given me, or that the benefit I'll take from it, is pretty much apart from currently rehabbing a, a labrum tear. Mm-hmm. Um, Which every, I think you're doing quite well with, based on Instagram. <laughs> you're getting back to your still could do some handstand push-ups and things. Yep. Um, <laughs> Of every other point after an injury, I've been at my strongest. So if you imagine it almost like the stock market in which you have those yeah. bull markets and bear markets, like yep. it's still the trend is still generally up. Yep. Uh, and I have the confidence that yeah, things will get better. Mm-hmm. This is only a temporary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be the end of the world. Um, so I guess maybe I've, I've somehow managed to build the confidence to be like, it's going to be okay. Yep. I'll go back and do it. How, how, how might you modify... Uh, exercises to kind of reduce that perception that fear and make it feel like it's something that's more safe to do um it's a good question i mean that is partly i think the one-on-one aspect of of working with someone you have to know the person i I understand that i'm asking lots of like how because i think it's like kind of people want to be able to apply this maybe it's their interest obviously seeing somebody one-to-one is the key yeah um i mean the people who as an example, a person who maybe has that is coming from a place of being feeling like their body is quite fragile, mm-hmm. or maybe that's implied and they're unconscious of that. But if, if that's the place, then you obviously want to start slow. You want to start with pacing the exercise, the sets and reps, and that sort of stuff, nice and gradually. And 
looking for your system's response. Like I would often say to people, I'd prefer that you start with a minimum dose that you're comfortable with and yeah. gradually ramp up. Even, even if it takes you two months to ramp up to where you think you should be able to, I don't really care. I prefer you to do that so that you get a bit of sustained time having a positive movement experience, having a positive loading experience without hopefully that many flare-ups. The second piece of that is that I tell them that flare-ups are a normal part of the process. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about this, yeah. Completely normal part of the process. And for me, it was a big learning point for me as a therapist when I started to actually implement a conversation piece to tell people that flare-ups happen. They're not always within your control. We can pace and we can do everything as appropriately as we can, but they're not always within your control. And what's important with a flare-up, I think, is is to... I have this this conversation piece I give to people, which is like the, the mountains and the speed bump. So... I think when you're a person, and maybe they've had loads of flare-ups in the past, if they have a, a flare-up of a symptom when they're working through something like this, if that if the meaning piece isn't kind of delved into there and there's not a conversation around the flare-up or what it potentially means, that person might go, holy crap, this is me right back to the start. I'm going backwards. This means I'm fragile. This means, and it's that meaning stuff that drives the response. And if you then enter a secondary stress cycle, as I call it, yeah. like a secondary ramp up in anxiety, fear, all that, that's like the whole experience ramping up into becoming a mountain. Sometimes people hit that mountain and bounce backwards. And that's the cycle they often get stuck in. Yeah. Whereas I think navigating a flare up can be learned, can be a skill that you can acquire. And I think that's obviously for someone with chronic symptoms, a really powerful thing to, to help them to gain. Um, and I like I have obviously a, an assessment with someone might be part of how you navigate that. It could also be that like if you haven't had a higher load, higher speed uh, experience in the last couple of weeks, you're probably less likely to have a fresh injury than if you have had a fall, a, a, a tackle, playing sport, you know stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. So you're looking for a mechanism of injury, I suppose, in a way. Um, if that hasn't happened. Uh, that's it, 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 let, let me be straight it's not a guarantee by any stretch of the imagination but it, it's a maybe an indication that this might not be an injury mm-hmm. I think that's the fear for most people I've, I've injured myself again I'm going backwards and I now have to start all over again the second piece then is maybe are your have your stressors increased have your has your sleep really really uh, regressed for for any reason in the in the last while they are well enough established in the in the scientific literature as predisposing factors towards a flare-up have you are, are are you currently obsessed with that area do you check in and are you plugged into that area monitoring how it's doing all of the time are you afraid of that area are you, is it constantly on your mind those things for me start to lean me towards flare-up and away from a, a, a percent or a, a fresh injury so if the person has a little framework like that to help maybe sort it out a little for themselves i find that really really helps them to kind of stop that speed bump yeah. becoming a mountain and then what they usually do if they can sort it out and i encourage them to regress exercises usually at that stage and go back to stuff that they've done before that they know is safe uh-huh. if we've been working together for a little bit of time and usually you'll see that speed bump will, will level out and they'll get to progress onwards yeah and the idea would be over time if it's possible that you have less frequency less intensity in terms of those speed bumps maybe you still have them over time i don't think it's I'll put it to you this way. I don't think it's logical 
or should be expected that a central nervous system that may have learned the need for protection over a longer period of time will just drop it all. No, and I I can, as you were saying that, I was like literally last week, somewhat maybe six months or so, my shoulder's been feeling good. I started doing some like basic one-arm hands. I wasn't doing one-arm hands, the prerequisites towards it. And I'd done a bit of that. Shoulder, like I could feel that it wasn't stable, but it felt pretty good. And I went to pick up Molly in like a weird internally rotated position. And I felt this like little twinge. Mm -hmm. And then immediately my brain went to like, oh no, what have you done? Uh, you shouldn't have done that session. Yeah, the self-blame comes in and oh, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, just because you were saying that, I was like, I've literally had that this last week and it probably took me two or three hours just saying to myself like, no, don't worry, you literally picked up a dog. Like, it's not... It's How much kilos? What, five kilos maybe? Nine, 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 kilos, nine kilos. Nine but kilos, like, okay. Yeah, and, and I was like, I went through that whole cycle with myself my, and then my shoulder started aching maybe because I was like thinking about my shoulder. Possibly. Um, and then I was like, you know what? Wake up tomorrow, see how it feels. Mm-hmm. And I woke up tomorrow and I was like, oh, yeah. it's fine. And, and that's <laughs> another piece. I mean, like if we are starting to kind of get back into, kind of going back to an earlier question, I think approaching a problem, it's like, can I can I keep the reps and sets low? Can I keep the, the experience of movement low for the initial t- time? Do I have pain during it? below or sorry above a five or six out of ten if i do i want to back off a little yeah if i don't have that do i have a ramping up of any discomfort like muscle soreness when you start to move an area especially if it's chronically not moved um, and chronically protected can feel like you've done a workout there Mm. at times that's not what i'm talking about if you have an increase in the symptoms that you know are this is my problem symptom um we obviously want to pace a little bit less aggressively than that or less forward than that if you wake up the next morning and you're okay i kind of have a loose rule of three maybe four do that same thing again give you a little break do it again see how you are the next day do it again if you if you're waking up three or four days in a row and you've done that thing and it's not that much of a problem maybe now you can increase the reps a little bit you can increase the the time spent doing that you can increase the frequency a little bit and it's it's teaching people how to pace themselves so that they have an idea of how they can increase and decrease this yeah yeah why, why is that important it puts them back in control most people with pain feel like they're completely out of control or they've got no sense of what they can do for themselves no no self-management is what i aim for with people over time and when people are injured and they can't figure out what the problem is or it's not going away they will sort of manically yep look about they either avoid it or if you're proactive you're trying to solve it but you're running around trying so many different things, maybe mm. not giving them time to work to try and find that yep. that solution. And, and again, a lot of times what I see with that are people who, for no fault of their own, their life experiences, their understandings of what's happened have led them to this idea that their body is not maybe as robust as they they ideally could believe it, it, it is yeah. or could, could, could see it as. Um, and when they do go to really reputable people, because I know loads of brilliant physiotherapists, brilliant therapists all around the place, they might have been to some of these people and really done good work that on the, the face of it looks like that should be sorting that problem out. A lot of times they have not really factored in the kind of more psychosocial side of things, that unconscious storm I talked about earlier, they've not really factored in that you know they've got a seriously stressful job and they don't sleep well and, and that these things can be potentially anyway continuing the pain cycles and maybe setting the scene for flare-ups maybe they don't have the skill to navigate a flare-up and they don't know that a flare-up doesn't mean 
they're injured and they're back to square one. It's stuff like that that I see a lot of people struggling with. I think, as you mentioned, like, oh, you've got the, the back of a 70-year-old. Like, yeah. maybe as a therapist, that might be a bit of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying your back's not great. But, like, actually, if you were somebody in pain and... Oh, man, when you're the, vulnerable, yeah. stuff like that hits completely differently. Yeah, yeah. Completely. And I mean, it sounds more like therapy than, than, yeah. <laughs> than anything, it, really. It does. And, I mean, I'm, I'm always very clear with people as well the the amount of people that I would have met through the years that come to me expecting a fix um, is... <sighs> so I was just having a thought in my head and you've literally just answered it. As well. <laughs> like, and I feel like that's also necessarily a little bit of education for the patient. It's yep. like, certainly when you're paying money to a physio, yep. you're like, fix me, please. Yep. And a lot of people will expect to go in, oh, I'll rub my shoulder, make this feel bad, and I'm going to be fine. Mm -hmm. I'm like, kind of doesn't, doesn't work like that. So I guess, like, how do you, how do you, how do you manage that expectation? Because yeah. I feel like a lot of times physios will just, they will give treatments even though they don't think that it's necessarily the best option because that's kind of what the patient the expectations expects. that yeah I I, I well again going back to it, questions for me lead to lead to the answers self-explanatory <laughs> but if you ask good questions and you ask a person I be direct with it what are you hoping for here what's your expectation yeah. what do you what has treatment looked like for you in the past? Have you, I mean, is it, has it always been just as an example, maybe some hands-on work manipulation, massage, and some exercises or stretches? Has anyone given you any, uh, any broader look at kind of your, your, your life and, uh, or any strategies to improve your sleep and you know, stuff like that? It's, yeah. it's asking what they're expecting. Um, a lot of people turn around and say, I don't care. <laughs> I actually don't care what happens as long as I get past the symptom because I can't. They're yeah, there most people the symptom, do you know? So, yeah. I mean, there, there's kind of a journey people seem to go through from that acute flare-up-y type stage towards the chronic side where they start to recognize that treatments can help, but they don't solve the problem at times. Yeah, yeah. And then when they get, unfortunately, when they end up in that space, they're open to understanding more, I think. They, they arrive there, which is maybe... A, a failure in the education side of things or something at some level. But um, uh, if they arrive there, they're more open usually to, to kind of looking at a wider range of topics and saying, well, I kind of need to get this sorted out because it's gone on for long enough. So yeah. let's explore this. So I think people are, they unfortunately end up there. <laughs> so you mentioned a couple of times the wider picture. Yep. So stuff outside of just exercise related remedies yep do you want to briefly go over like the different the different uh pillars or whatever you want to call yep. it the buckets that you could do and then maybe we'll yep. dive into them a little bit deeper yep so for me i think there's kind of two parts to this it's there's topics within it there's there's access to knowledge and support mm -hmm. and then i think there's self-regulation okay i'm saying this is coming up for me in clinic over the last while as a kind of topic to chew on in my own head um if you don't understand what could influence your symptoms. Again, as we mentioned, you could be shining the torchlight on the, the in the in an way. area that's not going to maybe move the needle for you over time. Yeah. So what could that be? That could be, again, some of that kind of more uh, structural, body oriented stuff like previous injuries, like loading capacity, like movement options. If you lack some of that stuff, it can obviously influence yeah. where you load, how your symptoms feel. The kind of psychological side of it, again, we've talked a bit about the belief systems, the narrative that's been built up around your symptoms, the 
what the meaning is of any labels, diagnosis you've had, um, all that opinion side of things, comparison to others who have had similar issues. I feel there's a lot of people that get really frustrated when they can't achieve the same progress that somebody else can because again everyone has a different story and there's probably reasons for that if you can break it down the self-regulation side of things then is managing stressors is a a massive part of life never mind pain um they have potential to have a negative influence breathing is one that can be quite useful for certain people uh sleep for me is a foundational piece um hygiene around sleep um not necessarily something I talk about that often, but potentially can be influential for people are their diet, their and then energy systems, that sort of stuff. Sure. Like there's loads of stuff there that uh, if we can help a person, as an example, to sleep a little bit better, if they are the sort of person who's sleeping three, four hours a night, that's going to make it really hard to overcome a symptom because your biology has kind of been driven towards... Uh, less regulation or less ideal regulation of itself do you know and yeah that, from a sleep perspective what what can what would you get people to do what do you think is um, people's time from for? what i understand sleep good sleep starts with what you do in the morning so i completely agree morning light exposure seems to be one of the biggest pieces circadian rhythm which is your natural day and night cycle this planet has a circadian rhythm we Everything in nature has a circadian rhythm, yes. everything that grows. So we are no different. Um, light exposure in the morning is a, is a crucial part. And I don't mean just flicking the light on in the bedroom or in the kitchen. That is is light exposure, but that's an awful lot less powerful than natural light, natural sunlight, even if it's like what we're looking at right now through clouds. Which is torrential rain. Torrential rain, storm gear on. And <laughs> Welcome to Ireland. Welcome to Ireland. Loads <laughs> of clouds. So, and this is what we get most of the time, to be fair. Light exposure is a signal to your nervous system to start ramping up the daily processes. So if you think of like, uh, as an example, cortisol, stress hormone has a daily rhythm, a circadian rhythm. You want to ideally kind of link that rhythm as closely to what nature intends as possible. Yeah. So I recommend as a practical kind of way to do this, even if it's pissing rain like it is outside here, <laughs> it can be as simple as opening a window as you can stay inside and stay warm. Um, if it's possible, pop out ideally as close to sunrise. Mm-hmm. And I know that in certain parts of the world, that might not be possible. Yeah, yeah. It can be really late. Your working day could have started. It could be really early. You might not want to get up that early. Ideally as close to sunrise, um, get that strong solar signal to hit your retina to signal what's called your suprachiasmatic nucleus, that master clock in mm. your brain, to set off your daily rhythms. Yep. Get that in the morning time. I recommend for most people about 30 minutes, if they can. And again, I will take some rather than none. Yeah, yeah. If you can just sit you know, outside for five minutes. Five minutes, I'll take it versus 30. If it's not possible, if routines and life and work and all mm. that doesn't allow it. If it's possible, get couple that with a little bit of breakfast and then a walk and then you set off the rhythms quite nicely ideally i would say maybe a little bit of light exposure during the day so if you've got lunch yeah. around 12 or 1 get out have a little bit of a walk again if it's possible and then in the evening time again i like a little bit of light exposure towards sunset mm-hmm. the other part of it then is that your if your sleep begins in the morning you make as far as i understand you make a lot of melatonin in the eye and in the skin whenever you expose yourself to natural light yeah that stuff is stored for want of a better word until everything is dark 
So we then see like light hygiene, light exposure late at night becoming a quite an important part there. So this is where all the advice about screens and blue light and all that people kind of have, it's kind of filtering into public consciousness now. It delays your release of melatonin. So as far as I understand it, if you and I are twins have the exact same day, we get our light exposure in the morning, we make some melatonin, we get our light exposure in the evening in the sun. And if I am on my uh, laptop or my Kindle or whatever for a couple of hours before bed and you're reading a book by candlelight, yeah. different light exposures, if we get a blood draw around one o'clock, let's say we go to bed at 10, get a blood draw around one o'clock, my melatonin could be up to 80% less than yours. Yeah. And that's a huge thing because that then feeds into restfulness, your sleep, uh, how deep your sleep is, how how replenishing your sleep is, into energy systems, to your immune system function. There's a lot of things that can be unpacked by that. So that's a piece that actually doesn't cost that much in terms of money. I mean, it's just free. It's free, more or less. Uh, time is what it costs and that's where people struggle yeah. and come back to that piece that's the self-regulation piece where people so struggle maybe to self-regulate or they don't know what's appropriate for yeah. them um that is a huge one if that over time done consistently becomes usually unless there are other factors influencing it becomes a person who sleeps better and that is more like a regulatory uh, regulation strategy you'd want to see for someone who's got persistent pain I mean, I think the research shows that if you sleep less than, I think it's six or six and a half hours and more than nine hours, it's it increases the chances of a pain experience because we don't regulate ourselves as well with sure. that too much or too little sleep. So there are kind of biological things that we can take advantage of, um, self-regulation that way. Yeah. I mean, that's putting in place some, some stuff to deal with stressors. I think the too much is an interesting one as well because... As you're saying this, I was thinking about some examples of friends and stuff. And a lot of people would be like, I haven't slept that much. I went to bed late. I'm going to lie in. Yep. And that's when we get this like disjointing of different bedtimes, different wake yeah. times. And because your sleep is so dictated by that morning light exposure, yep. like, okay, maybe you didn't sleep great last night. Is it better that you lie in or is it actually better that you wake up in the morning and you reset things and start from a good foundation to then get a great night's sleep? Yeah. The, the day after. I think it depends on how you do things over time. So if it's an, an a, a, like if you're consistently getting up and getting your morning sunlight, maybe one or two experiences of having a bad night's sleep, yeah. sleeping in it probably don't matter. No, it's not your if it's consistently the other way around where your, your sleep schedules are all over the place, I personally, knowing what I know, would prefer that you go and get the morning sunlight and have a nap later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because you're regulating your system over a longer term trend. I think that's a piece that a lot of people don't really uh appreciate as much as looking at it with a trend view versus a data point i, I think and that's for everything as a human that's so hard to yep. appreciate and understand because as you're saying this i'm like i'm just thinking about kind of maybe somebody's reaction to this in terms of like the opposite so yep. you know to play devil's advocate they'll be like oh no you know you can't feel that it's not making that big a difference but actually like when we're talking about this it's not like two three weeks it's, it's something that's going to impact you over yep. years or decades yeah longer really like it's, it's those habits that you build up it's over. really really hard to, to to think like that it and, is and it's it how, is. like how would you put that into a scale and it, you know i guess you have to have trust in the person who's giving yep. you the information have faith in that like that's going to be good for you yeah I, I do think it's the sort of thing that you will feel benefit in the much shorter term yep but yeah it's, it's very very hard to kind of unless you really believe the information yep. that you're I think that's what, what it comes down to. I think it comes down to 
um, when you're playing devil's advocate there, that, that strikes me as a person who has a belief that is counter to that and at that point isn't willing to maybe explore that or change that. And that's that's okay. Also, that's, perhaps somebody wants to justify their current behaviors. Absolutely. I like sitting on my, like, <laughs> like at the end of the day, there's a big dopamine hit to like sitting and scrolling on your phone. Absolutely. There's a reason that apps work in a certain way yeah. and it's to keep you on it. Mm-hmm. And you do have to apply some self-discipline. Yep to make sure that you can use technology and get the most out of it without it being detrimental towards you. And like, yes, oh, blue light at night, I think it's pretty well established that it makes a significant impact on you. But you mm-hmm. can take the position that like, oh, it doesn't matter. I get good sleep regardless. But like, you're just kind of justifying the current behaviors you have rather than... Yeah, and I mean, it's also like everything is self-perception. I mean, there's... there's I, I definitely remember reading studies where a person, I think the gist of it was that a person who is sleep deprived can never accurately measure how sleep deprived they are. <laughs> when they do tests like reaction time tests and stuff like that, they always overestimate how good they are and they underestimate how bad they are. <laughs> and when you actually look at the scores, they could be miles worse than they feel they are. Yeah. So it's it's hard that way. Sure. So it's... it's um You get used to the state that you're in. Yeah, it, it becomes your normal. And then you, you habituate to that. That's that's hard because you might not know how good it could be because you feel okay. Maybe feeling okay is is acceptable. That's that's your own judgment, I suppose. Um, you may feel significant benefit from it if you're willing to give it a go. Yeah, that's. I think as well, like you can get eighty the eighty percent rule, right? The yeah. principle, like do most things. You can sit on your phone a bit, and like after the sun's gone down, the sun's going down at the moment, like four thirty here. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's like, realistically, you're probably going to use some technology after that point, but just maybe one or two hours before bed, try to avoid it. Try Mm -hmm. to turn lights off, have some candles on, make sure you get up and see some light. Like you don't have to, you don't have to live like a stoic and yeah, a hundred percent, um, tunnel vision and tunnel vision on it. Like, yeah, like I can't go to a party. I can't socialize. Yeah, of course. Like you don't have to be like that. I mean, life has to happen too. Mm -hmm. So I think if you look at it again with that trend idea, if you do this, 80% 80% of the time, like that's a piece I use for people for all different types of uh, rehab and all that. If What can you do for 20% of your effort or less that yeah. gives you 80% of your results? Can you do it 80% of the time and not beat yourself up for the 20% you miss? Yes. That gives you room for error or to fail. And then if, as an example, if you're going into trying to improve your sleep hygiene or you're improving, you're trying to do some rehab work, you're not used to kind of maybe doing exercises as regularly, never miss twice. Maybe chalk off one week to when life goes crazy and yeah. never miss the second week. If you can do that over time, you're not guaranteeing, but you're you're giving yourself a trajectory that's going to lead to progress, lead to improvement. I like that. Never miss twice. I think a lot of people get into a bit of a trend of they want to do something perfectly, and if they can't do it perfectly, they're just like, oh, why do I bother? And it's yep. like, okay, uh, I, I if, always... if you're a smoker, like if you maybe if you only smoke five days a week rather than seven, it's going to be better than. <laughs> you know yeah. as an extreme example yeah, like, I mean, just do something it, 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 it brings another point up for me as well as i kind of say to people at times um self-blame doesn't really have a place here no in no. this process and if you find yourself self-blaming um but i think it's a hard one to get out it's of. a really hard one to get out of. it's it's i think if you if you can have awareness around it and catch it maybe you can pull yourself back from it a little bit more readily doesn't mean it's not going to happen it's not to try and suppress completely it's yeah. to catch it and get back on track with your your mindset ideally do you think that perhaps like because we maybe have more examples on social media 
of people like mm. this is how I do it and you can because you because you, you get to filter and edit what is going to go online yeah. you get to present a much more perfect example than like actually as realistically possible yeah I mean I think I think that's one thing I I I would love to see less of <laughs> I would love to see more realism I, I often talk to clients about coming back to what's realistic because again what we're talking about there that self-blame that perf- maybe perfectionist tendency to want to do everything perfectly or want to get all my rehab in it or whatever it might be um it leads to this real stressor and it, it adds to the stressors it, adds it takes to the stress away from it. exactly and some for some people it might take it away for most people i think it, it adds to it and then it leads you to this place where you, things fall apart yeah, and, you feel and, like you're a bit of a failure because you can't stick you to this. If you had a little bit more of a realistic appreciation, maybe that life is tough. Yeah, life is messy. Life is not predictable. A lot of times, I think, like almost on a like, definitely on a weekly basis, probably a daily basis in clinic, at least one client will come in and say, "Well, I haven't been so good at doing my homework," and I'm <laughs> like, "Okay, yeah, I don't care. I would prefer that you're honest and that we." use it as a reorientation to maybe get back on it, maybe deal with, uh, have a chat about what you struggle with. If there's something we can advise to help you with that, then yeah. cool, that's a step forward in my opinion. Um, I bake that into all of my expectations for clients because life is not, you don't have all of the hours just sitting in front of you and you can fill them as you want. It's Everyone has obligations and events that happen that dictate to you, do you know? I really like what you said as well, as you talked about kind of giving advice to clients, you said you asked them, when we said about people's expectations of rehabs like is this something you think could oh, work yeah. for you yeah rather than a lot of people will be like i'm the expert i know what's right yeah. this is and it's like technically probably you are correct in terms of like if we had an ideal situation yeah. those are the things you should be doing but making somebody a feel like they have to do that yeah. maybe they stress about they can't as we've mentioned all these things yep. stress about can't doing it you don't do anything it's like okay what realistically i mean again like that you said earlier the the best rehab in the world can fall prey to your perception it can also fall prey to your lifestyle Mm -hmm. so you could you could have the best ideal plan but if you can't execute it it doesn't matter as much so it's about fitting in for that person i can like again i can really identify with this over the past couple of years has been uh, a big struggle for myself personally with more of just like that identification as to the person i used to be Mm -hmm. versus like the situation that i was put in I said to mention to you, I was renovating houses, but yep. I, I think this is quite common in, on fitness advice in general on YouTube is that we are in a privileged position in terms of that's what we do as a, a job. Mm-hmm. So one, we have much more time to dedicate yep. to. We have, you know, the financial incentive as well. Yep. The, the, the motivation to do it is significantly higher, I guess, in that, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you don't, you don't have those external stresses and it, and, you're, most most people are also young as well yep. in, in that position. And I think when I was a student training and when I was doing this as a job, training, like I had all of those things in my favor and it wasn't until the last sort of couple of years when I've had those external influences and I haven't been able to do things perfectly and I've gone yep. through that process of being like, what's the point? I can't do this. And I stopped sharing stuff online because I was like, oh, I'm not doing what I preach. And then I was like, actually, yep. I need to really uh, adjust my opinion on this yep. and and actually like what is realistic something yep. is better than nothing mm-hmm. um and and i was yeah it was, it honestly being like that's been the biggest change for me over the past couple of months not beating myself up if i can't do a session like yesterday i did 20 minutes outside because 
we've been traveling around. That's all I had time for. Mm -hmm. Like I was like, it's not perfect, but it's probably not going to get me towards those really high level goals. But like equally, it's not taking you further away. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's been a massive mental shift. And I think, um, I think that one, that one is one that I think is common for a lot of people. They may not appreciate that that's what they're facing. Mm -hmm. Maybe hopefully a conversation like this helps them maybe see that that might be what you're going through. Yeah. Um, and to know that that is normal. It's hard. It's not, if it was easy, you'd have sailed through this already, do you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's that's a significant piece. If we can help people see the journey for what it is, coming back to that realistic view on things, yeah. Um, that is that is a piece that takes away, against secondary stressors. Yeah. The perfectionist maybe tendencies at times. It helps you be okay with doing what you can. Yeah. It's also slightly boring and like <laughs> as advice. Uh, yeah, of course. It's it like is. it really annoys me because I'm like, it just is it's the best advice, but sometimes it's just not very glamorous and it's yeah. it's hard to it's hard to get somebody really inspired when they reality when they, is full <laughs> stop. It's <laughs> very true. Um speaking of which, so we had sleep. Um you mentioned briefly about diet, you mentioned breathing. Yeah. I'm interested to hear what your thoughts on breathing so is. For me, right, I think if you in the how do I put this? Breath work's really popular at the minute. Yes. And there I think is a lot of benefit to understanding yourself via your breath. Mm-hmm. If you if something if all everything falls to pieces now on this podcast, both of our breathing rates are gonna go up. Yeah, yeah. And it's it it's a it's a piece that I think you might not be able to change a stressor outside of you it could be going on for months you can always come back if you can get the self-awareness which is a part of this to controlling your breathing and that may be the difference between you breathing at a really rapid rate which the kind of literature might say would be toward a fight or flight response more stress in the system more stress hormone release you can always bring that back if you can be conscious of it Mm -hmm. i think breathing sits at the the fork in the road in terms of the brain where it's conscious and unconscious access to it if you are conscious of it or you build the habit of being conscious of it you can fall back into regulation i think more easily than if you're unconscious of it if you're unconscious of it you're being breathed by the unconscious autonomic nervous system which is reacting to all your fears all your worries all your stressors all your physiological inputs and that might be the difference between you feeling completely agitated irritated overloaded uh maybe tending towards more emotional responses and you being able to bring yourself back to a calmer space mm-hmm. that i think is powerful for people yeah i think it's a really a really useful tool to have yeah, I think um, so. what what can you give some examples I'm, I'm i've read a couple of books i've read uh another irish what's his name uh patrick McEwen. patrick McEwen. Mm-hmm. his book was great um and there's another one as well breath or breathe james nester yeah james nester. so like i i know i remember seeing an experiment done once with someone where they breathed at 20 breaths per minute yeah so three second that's inhale exhale that's right. quick. So really quick really common actually as well i think anything i think i'm, I'm i believe it's something between like the 12 and 12 15, 15 is good I actually think it needs to come back from that a little uh, bit more. I would agree, based on the, the Patrick McCann book. And, and that's yeah, so what he was saying. I, I like, would say to people, if you're trying to self-reg, 12 to 15 as a normal response, probably not too bad. Anything maybe above 12, I'd say you're heading towards the kind of, potentially towards the fight or flight side of things. 
if you can bring it back to the six to eight breaths a minute, mm-hmm. I think that's pretty safe to say you're going to be self-regulating better. Yeah. Yeah. I can share a personal anecdote, and I'm not going to say it's anything more meaningful than that. I had a migraine a few weeks ago. Um, really uncommon for me. I was really depleted. Uh, poor sleep. A lot on my plate, etc. Busy, busy week at work. Had a migraine. And for me, in that moment, when we got out of the, that we were in a, we were taking our kids to soft play and the lights were really aggressive and I was really irritating my eyes and all that. So got out of that, got into the car and about eight to 10 minutes of that six breath a minute and I used a stopwatch on my phone to kind of yeah. like it. The aura disappeared, the aura reduced, the headache reduced and it helped me to self-regulate. Is that always going to happen? Maybe, maybe not. I felt it was quite useful for me to bring my system back down a little bit. I think maybe it's understanding that, yeah, breathing isn't going to change your situation. Yeah. Like if you're in a uh, a stress, no, not a stressful situation, but if you're in a situation of externalities that you can't control, breathing yeah. isn't necessarily going to change that situation, but it will change your perception and your response. And to your, it. Yeah, which I think is a really great way of, of thinking about it. I did, like if you had a stressful day, just spending five minutes of breathing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, and I th- when you were saying that, I think the piece of literature I, I referenced in a recent video, like a uh, minimal workout, I talked to a student, adding five, 10 minutes of breathing. And I think that was like basically between the four and eight breaths per minute was like yeah. the, the evidence for the slow breathing yeah. being relaxing. I often yeah. say to people, if you can get six breaths a minute, 10 seconds of breath, yeah, slow you're probably going to get yourself back to a more regulated yeah. space. And and from like a from a tra- it's quite a big thing for flexibility training, which is obviously something I'm yep. very interested Relaxing in and breathing into it. And- yeah, well, and also like somebody somebody mentioned to me, I think it might have been Emmett um, actually, and he was like, if you can't breathe in a position, like if you feel yourself holding your breath when you're in a stretch, your body is prioritizing not breathing. Uh, sorry, not dying. Like breathing is kind of important <laughs> for living. It's prioritizing not breathing so that you might survive the position you're in. It's yeah. like it's telling you that you're feeling extremely unsafe mm-hmm. so I, I see that in, in my assessment of people as well i may put them into an exercise that's challenging and i'm i'm obviously looking to see how they coordinate that and yeah. how they, they, they whether they struggle whether they don't but i'm also listening can they breathe yeah if they can't it's probably telling me that they're above their threshold of current yeah potentially above the threshold That's it's not, not it's not saying you're not going to get out of breath when you do exercise exactly it's, it's more of like how you're holding your and breath it's not to say that you you have to be able to breathe through every single movement or exercise it's not that either yeah it can sometimes indicate a system that is struggling a little bit in a position it's one option there and i don't always say that it's definitely applicable but it's just a little piece that you may see obviously in terms of facial facial uh, expression and effort and uh, yeah it might be one thing that that, that can assist maybe we'll regress this a little bit um do you have any opinions on on flexibility maybe in regards to uh injury prevention or maybe around treating injuries so uh, two two prongs to that uh, some people like to claim that flexibility decreases your risk of injury yep. and i see that a lot in like youtube comments mm-hmm. and i obviously make content around flexibility that's like the thing that i do yep and i find it hard to be like it's probably not going to decrease your risk of injury unless maybe you're doing a sport in which you require that really extreme range of motion yep. and then from a rehab perspective i i see some benefits depending on the injury and sometimes not and i think yep. again it's like two common misconceptions one in stretching prevents injury and two that it will help heal your injury that if yeah. you have any so if you want to tackle them individually stretching preventing injury um, 
I'm really on the fence here. I can't say it does. I can't say it doesn't. I'm well. I so, so, as, as far as I understand, it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, but I, I think I'd lean that way. I think actually. But I think if you were to so say, for example, you were going to participate in an activity in which an extreme range of motion was required, and you lacked that range of motion, yeah, not having it is probably going to put you at a higher chance of injury. Possibly, yeah. I think I think that's fair enough so to say. So perhaps maybe uh, as a couple of examples, um, if you are going to do jujitsu and you had poor shoulder flexibility, yep. you probably would be at risk of injury in some of the more extreme positions. Quite possibly. Um, gymnastics only if you're going to participate. I mean, have I, mean I think like flexibility. the stretching flexibility side of it, there's there's like, what? where are you at within your current capacity, your, your ideal capacity? Sure. If you are at your ideal capacity, then stretching is probably not going to make that much difference mm -hmm. for you if you have an ability to expand your capacity then maybe it has a, a a protective effect for some people yeah um but again that's also like you said if you're going to be exposed to those extreme positions you probably want more ability to share a load than less yeah as, yeah. A, as a general rule so that might be where it comes in um second part of that was if stretching what was is it, is it the, part of a rehab process i think a lot of people um, were like i've got an injury i'm just gonna stretch out and i will say from personal uh experience that it doesn't tend to help with injury i, I tend to find that uh, the common we sort of said about you become hyper aware of it yep. and you might see somebody like they're constantly be rubbing like where they've got that pain or they're constantly be trying to stretch mm -hmm. out uh, and i and i think it's, it's that comes from a good place usually in terms of like you're trying to do something to help it but mm -hmm. I personally tend to find that it doesn't. Yeah, for me, I, I I, think I agree with you there. I think stretching could be a form of loaded exercise, so I don't mm -hmm. mind it from that perspective. Yeah. I think there's a, uh, a, like most things, like there's a lot of, of uh, scientific understanding, I'd say, that maybe was developed in the last 30, 40, 50 years that is currently being tossed out. There's a process. It's a process of always evolving the ideas. I think that stretching and flexibility side of things maybe has been established in the public mind as a a thing that you do. It was a tool that and it is obviously still relied upon by a lot of therapists, a lot of um, athletes, amateur athletes, you know, gym goers, etc. I don't think there's inherently anything majorly wrong with stretching itself. Yeah. Do you have to stretch to reduce pain or to avoid injury? I don't think so. I think I would always prefer that a person, like you've maybe mentioned there, gets able to load in those extreme or position, more, more extreme positions. And I think that's probably as best you can mitigate the risk yourself. Do I think stretching has to happen there? It might be a tool that's useful for a person if they are currently quite restricted. Like, like I mentioned, that the capacity is restricted compared yeah, yeah. to where it could be. I think it's. I guess it's like a low level of loading as well. To some yeah, extent, it is. It is. So it's 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 that might be how you how how I would use it. Um, I have this idea as well of giving my. I think I mentioned it earlier. Giving my a person's body, brain, nervous system, whatever you want to call it, an experience of movement in an area that is safe. A stretch may prevent or produce that for someone, and it could be beneficial for that reason. Mm -hmm. Like to uh, to someone who maybe cannot extend a hip after a an ankle sprain or a, a hip operation, getting that opening up into the I'm gonna I'm gonna go into taboo territory here with a hip flexor, um, <laughs> but opening up that hip into extension might be really beneficial because they could have been avoiding that for quite a long period of time and might feel like their system may may gain a lot from having evidence of safety there. Do you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I like that. And and I think that's actually one of the things. So 
there's a couple of things with injuries that like if you if you injure yourself doing some strength exercise sometimes it's more about just loading in positions but injuring yourself doing flexibility training which yep. is is not uncommon certainly when yep. people are pushing splits i think that's a different kettle of fish so like if you were going to approach restoring range of motion after injury mm -hmm. like what would be the things that you're looking for in that in that regard uh from that perspective again it's it's an understanding for me of how that injury and how that injury site plays into global movement patterns so i've trained with uh a, a walking gait perspective anatomy and motion if you've heard of it gary wards and i motion. i trained with that years ago i find that to be a really useful framework for me i'm confident with it i can bring that across into my assessments quite well i think that's useful because i mean you could have a knee injury that stops you from hiking your pelvis rotating your hip and side bending your spine and you might see that there's lots of those pieces that need to be addressed as well as getting the knee to bend so i would often look at that from a joint structure perspective initially as to what would maybe be ideal and again ideal mightn't be yeah optimal or or, or absolute here an ideal um and then what can they currently do and then it's a simple process what might be blocking them from closing that gap assess their system can they load certain tissues you might you might put them into a, a loaded exercise and they shake like a leaf you yep. can say fairly fairly uh um, comprehensively i think there that that's struggling to share load and that intermuscular coordination is what it could be it could be just simply the the the, the system experiencing that range of motion is, is has been avoided for a long period of time yeah. if we can improve access to that give them a way again to be active in the process tell them what to hopefully expect tell them how to manage it if they need to and then progressively ramp that up over time that's kind of my approach to it so i'm always a fan of um improving access to movement and then loading with progressive overload it's fairly simple straightforward i think yeah, but yeah. It, it's it's how i do it like um, I, I like that. I think that you know, getting overly complicated sometimes is is more of like a a way to demonstrate your uh, your your like oftentimes the, the simplest approach is probably going to be the best approach from a patient's yeah. perspective. Uh, I just wanted to touch on what you mentioned about shaking. Yep, and I think that's a, I've seen that a couple of times in some some stuff online and like getting people into kind of relatively quote unquote easy positions. Then you see this response of them. Mm -hmm. sort of shaking or, or that inability to, to be there what what would that mean potentially um again i'm, I'm going general here yeah yeah no i get you i i think i think from seeing that in clinic i think that generally correlates with people who have lost loading capacity in that position so you might be bending a knee as an example and at 10 degrees of flexion are absolutely fine when you get to 25 you start but the knees shaking. the knees start shaking and that's the, especially if that person has has the full knowledge that i've had a scan nothing wrong with my structure i don't have any issues with muscular stuff like that what is happening there for the nervous system to then go from i'm confident i'm confident i'm comfortable this is easy bang whoa shaking like a leaf <laughs> i think it's an issue with intermuscular coordination i think yeah um as in like your muscle, your, your body's trying to fire lots of different muscles at the same time because it's unsure how to get that synchronization. That's certainly not going to get better without accessing that position. Mm -hmm. It will probably get a little better if you give your system a chance to figure the problem out. So if we can gradually progressively do that, I think you often see restoration of like that smoothness of range of motion. Not always. It doesn't have to happen for pain as an example to improve. I think it, it makes a difference though. I think it does... 
um, I, I tend to do a little bit of that in clinic at the minute. I'll, I'll put people into a position where I know this is going to probably load that quad or that calf or that hamstring significantly enough. And if it does, I and I see them shake like that, am I going to say 100% that's going to cause them a problem out in a put, on a football pitch? Maybe. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if if fatigue comes in and their current way of loading that avoids this issue starts to break down, as an example, then maybe they're going to struggle. Mm-hmm. That might be where that symptom starts to arise. And if it does, then knowing that they struggle in this position and getting them a problem aware in that way and then starting to work through that with maybe different exercises or drills or whatever, that can often take that issue, reduce it significantly. And a lot of times I'm seeing in clinic that that'll, that'll make them feel quite quite a bit better. And I think it's a... I keep things simple and I could be wrong. <laughs> so if I am, I apologize. Um, I think that's restoring options to load share. I think if you look at a human being and you limit their options to load share, you're going to end up with issues. Yes. If yeah. you open up options to load share, you're probably going to have... So those adaptations to pain is is limiting your ability, limiting your options yep. to avoid the, the, the issued areas and you're through rehab trying to expand your yes. ability to have yep. more... Yep. breadth to solve the, the physical the, problems. Uh, the analogy I give to people is if I tell, if I pop you in the car now and tell you to drive to Cork, which is the other end of the country, yeah. but I take away Apple and Google Maps yeah. and I take away motorways, you're probably going to get there eventually on the country road. Eventually. It <laughs> might take you a little longer than me, but no, maybe not. Um, if all the traffic from this area is heading at the same time, you have lots of people, lots of pissed off people, <laughs> maybe roadworks, maybe accidents, maybe traffic jams. I liken that in a simplistic way to those are the areas of your body that your system is currently happy to load. And if you're missing some areas of, maybe you're missing a motorway here or there, a really optimal way to do that or a better way to do that, if you want to call it that, if we can restore that, we load share, we spread everything. And I think that usually helps people. Okay, I see that quite a lot. Yeah, I like that. I love that. Right, I think we're going to have to brave the storm and uh, ask you some hot takes and then jump in the ice bath right, to, let's do to it. finish up. <laughs> let's do it. Right, let's go. Let's go. Mike, let's rock. Oh, please. Okay, um, number one, I feel like with soft tissue therapy, you either have the traditional standard, which is like massage is going to fix all of my problems, yeah. or you have the opposite side of the camp, which is like soft tissue does nothing. What do you think about soft tissue work uh, in its relation to rehab? I think it's personal preference, totally. Uh, I, do I think it's necessary? No. Do I think it's unhelpful? No. I think there can be benefits. I'm, I'm definitely in the middle of the, middle of the road here a little okay. Um, personal preference rules there if the person feels like that's a necessary part of what they need to get better give it to them get them to to receive it if they're okay to work away without it i would i personally don't do that much of it at all so i just work away on getting them moving and feeling and understanding and progressively overloading that way so i guess if you would take the almost placebo effect route in terms of like if the patient or if somebody felt that the soft tissue work had value, maybe it is providing value. Yeah, I think that is that is fair enough to say. I think if you're trying to, if you don't allow for that placebo, if you don't um, appreciate that potential placebo, whether it's to do with soft tissue treatment or 
your conversational style with a client or the all the other the non-specific elements in the, in the treatment setting if you're not trying to get those working in your favor you're missing stuff i love it i love it um anti-inflammatories things that mask pain i guess earlier on in, in an injury somebody might take something like ibuprofen or on the more extreme end, you might go to a doctor or to the hospital and they will give you a cortisone injection. They're like, yeah. oh, you've got pain here. Don't worry about it. We'll just inject something to the area. What do you think? A tool that can be used. Um, I'm kind of against the principle of anti-inflammatories if inflammation is a normal part of the healing process. For, for in one aspect. In the other aspect, I think they're useful if the person's not able to cope with the pain. So... It's a kind of a, again, a gray area answer. You're probably going to get loads of them from me. But I think it's uh, it's a tool to be used appropriately. And I do think they're probably used too much if they're dished out as a, as a way to deal with a person rather than actually listening and understanding and, and actually assessing properly. Like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that always happens. If it does happen, then it's probably too much, too much exposure to that. If that's the only strategy you have, find more. Okay, yeah. So maybe an example I can think of is some friends who are either like a, they were a gymnast or they were they were doing it, and they would just get a cortisone injection because it would basically take away the pain, and they would be able to just go back to doing their training as normal. I guess in, in that circumstance, if it's your only tool that you have, you, yeah. yeah, then then you're probably. Like, I mean, I know there's some research that say that cortisone injections can actually predispose you to more more problems in the the area in the joint, etc. So not fan of it for that reason if again if it's your only option in terms of pain relief then you really want to be in my opinion exploring more because that's that's not going to last you forever i don't think <laughs> i think the notion of perfect form mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about how that when you have an injury or you have pain you will adapt to avoid it and you will yeah. create these different what do you think about the insistence on perfect form to mitigate injuries or or in general in exercise Oh, it's a good one. Uh, I think perfect form doesn't exist in the first place. There are ranges within perfect, if you want to call it that. So there might be, if you want to load your hamstrings in a deadlift, you have to maybe achieve a certain set of positions to to, to get that to happen. Does, does perfect form happen all the time? I don't think any personal trainer, therapist has an ability to produce perfect form in a person. It's about how their system solves the movement pattern or problem or task so within that there's variability i think there's enough variability i think maybe an issue might be not perfect form a uh, slightly different approach lack of variability could be a problem so uh if if for perhaps maybe somebody has an inability to stray outside of a certain form that could be more of a problem than not being able to perform something perfectly yeah i think so i think that's what i see in my clinic they have to perform a movement in a certain way um, is this kind of what you're saying? Well, no, I think they have to have options within that okay. movement. As in, I think I think having to do it in a perfect way is perfect form for me. That's mm-hmm. the how I understand it. I prefer that you have enough wiggle room and enough places to be able to tolerate what you're doing. That's my way of looking at it. Okay. Uh, last one for you. Hot or cold therapy when it comes to injuries? We're obviously doing some hot now. We're about to do some cold. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Again, I think it's personal preference. I think there's a lot of belief system stuff about this, that hot works, cold works, etc. If it works for you, temperature change can be, from a signaling perspective, can, I think, affect your nervous system's perception of what's happening. I think that's how it mostly works. I don't think it has to be one or the other. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's find what works for you. Have a pre- If that's your preference, go for it. I mean, it's a tool, again, to relieve or potentially reduce symptoms. Go for it if that's the case. Love it. 
Cool. Great. <laughs> we can enjoy the heat as long as you like. Oh my goodness. The, Let's get this cold on. The ice bath is inevitable. Whichever one you want to go in, I guess. This one? This would be torture, isn't it? <laughs> After you, sir. How oh, are not too bad. Oh, yeah. Woo! Okay. That is kind of fun. <laughs> oh, I am not used to this. So, uh, this is usually quicker fire questions. Yes. If somebody struggles with getting cold, what might be the reason for it? Uh, lack of exposure, like probably. Me. Like Stop. me. <laughs> right now. I, I feel like we've answered so many questions. I'll be happy enough to get out. I'm freaking stinging. <laughs> Have you got any questions for me? Yeah, why have you done this to me? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I think unfortunately the storm has us beat when it comes to these cold questions but I would like to say a massive thank you for David for joining us driving out here he is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to rehab I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you got something from it as well as always let us know your thoughts your opinions any future guests all of that stuff in the comment section down below and I'll catch you in the next one have a strong week peace